Vijay Prashad, welcome. Here we are. <laughs> Thanks. Great to be with you, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Vijay, you're the Vijay Prashad. For the listeners who don't know, is the I'm sure you know. If you're listening to this, you probably know Vijay Prashad. But he's the director of the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research, uh, author of many, many books. You probably the most recent would be Washington Bullets, which had a blurb from Evo Morales, which I know Vijay is proud of because you see the blurb everywhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, Vijay, you know. I will, for no particular reason, I just wanted to talk to you today on January 13th. Uh, I just I just thought I'd invite you out of the blue and, you know, just just for a chat, you know, I don't know anything going on in our lives. But um, but, you know, I wanted to talk to you specifically about an idea that I've been having just spontaneously about modernization. So like the idea of modernization and like, you know, what do you think of the idea of modern? Because I, I think like the idea of modernization is something, you know, it could, you you could, there's a critique, I think a legi very legitimate critique from say indigenous, uh, you know, the indigenous movements that say like, we don't want your stupid modernization. We don't want you to stick your, your mines and your poisoned water and your dams all over our territory and call that modernization. You know, we don't want you to assimilate our children and impose uh, you know, English language or French language educate your colonial languages on us, you know, that's not, you know, we don't want that kind of modernization. So, you know, on the other hand, you have like China or, you know, Cuba, you have, uh, you know, when they when they have like a universal literacy program or China's uh, attempt to lift a successful attempt to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, they they would use the term modernization for building infrastructure and building out education. So how do you how do you think about this, this idea of modernization in different contexts? Well, um, it's a tough uh, d discussion to enter into because the terms are easily misconstrued. Um, you know, I, I know there's a critique to be made of what is known as modernization theory. W.W. Rostow and other American political scientists um, after World War II in the height of the Cold War made the argument against communism, saying that societies need to be moved from tradition to modernity. Um, that's modernization theory. You know, there are roots in the sociology of Talcott Parton, Parsons. Um, there are roots in, in, in various forms of um, you know, positivist sociology of like tracking here's a traditional society, you know, going back to 19th century Germany, where um, where the idea was you move from Gemeinschaft or community to Gesellschaft, which is civil society. And the journey between Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft or tradition to modernity is something that has to happen, you know, to bring us into this contemporary world, um, you know, which is alienating and has its own isolations and problems and so on. There's a tradition in European social thought. There's a tradition in political thinking in general about this great transition. And how about, now, in, how about in communist theory? Like, do communists adopt that stage theory of like barber, you know, or whatever tribal and then states and, and, you know, advanced civilizations? Is that a, is that a debate? How would you, how would you define the debate within the communist literature, I guess, on that question? It actually doesn't uh, map onto this at all. Uh, because you see, this theory suggests that 
um, somehow modernity, which becomes coterminous to capitalism, uh, is the big break from an older history, you know, from the past. Um, but in fact, many of the people who make the claim for modernity do it in a very constrained way. You know, it's modernity generally for Europeans, um, where they are able to transcend their culture. Um, because that's part of, of the idea is that you have to be able to break out of your community. You have to become an individual, as it were. And that has to do with capitalism, with market relations, with the way you enter the market as an individual, with your merits and so on. Um, this is there very much in Max Weber and, and others. That's one whole tradition of thinking. But at the same time, they say that the so-called quote-unquote barbarians, those who had been colonized, they don't have the cultural wherewithal to break from their tradition um, and become, you know, uh, modern. And there are many, you know, accounts in the 1950s of anthropologists and sociologists who travel to India, uh, travel to Nigeria. They write books about the blockage of modernity because these cultures are an impediment. Now, that's interesting because, in fact, they are reproducing colonial thought in the colonial times. Colonial leaders would come to, you know, these parts of the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America, you know, in, in, into Eastern Europe even. And they would say things like, look, these people cannot be made into modern. The most we can do is we can sort of train them to live in the modern world. Um, they can't become modern, but they can live in the modern world. We'll yeah. extract resources as, from as them. As it and happens, so on. they can live as our slaves, more or less. Or yeah, exactly. You know, they they have a different standard of living. I mean, when when in 1984, when the Union Carbide factory exploded in Bhopal in India, an American executive said, "Look, Indians have a different idea of life. You know, their their notion of human life is different." If if you know 3000 indians die in an, in an explosion well they think they'll be born again and so on we don't need to worry about it so much but if one american dies that's horrendous and by the way this calculation is seen in wars that the united states conducts if a us soldier is killed that's an abomination if 500 civilians are killed well we're sorry you died but you have a different attitude to life so that colonial thinking is very much there in modernization theory um, in this theory that, you know, capitalism can come to these parts of the world. But let's face it, they don't need to be paid too much in India. You know, those workers, they can um, live in wretched conditions and caste hierarchies can be reproduced to help maintain capitalist structures. You know, we'll have these oppressed castes do that occupation and so on. This was mapped on to uh, Indian reality. I'm, I'm giving you the Indian example because I know that best of all. In the communist tradition, the idea was you have to break radically from the social hierarchies of the past. You know, not that you go from community to uh, individualism, you go from social hierarchy to social equality. Um, you know, you don't go to individualism, you go to a social world where people don't are not tormented by the wretched hierarchies of the past, you know, hierarchies reinforced by religion, by race, by caste, by patriarchy and so on. So the communist transition period goes from social hierarchy, the wretchedness of those hierarchies to social equality. So actually, it's quite different. Now, the thing is that maybe we suffer from a problem of language. What do we call that communist transition, you know, from social hierarchy to social equality? 
well we call it to some extent modernization why should we allow um you know people the capitalist groups to uh, basically take over monopolize the concept of modernity we say it's a form of modernization socialist modernization why because part of the modernization is improving the basic conditions of people's lives. You know, you got to improve things like literacy levels. You got to improve things like access to, you know, running water so that because of the nature of patriarchy, women spend hours going to collect water. Their leisure time is, is reduced. Their capacity to study is reduced. Their capacity to engage other people is reduced. Yeah. So Just, all of but, that is part of socialist modernization. And literacy, right? So like, um, you know, in a lot of communist revolutions, there is a program to make sure that girls and women learn to read at the same rates as men. And there's often a lot of resistance to that in rural areas. We, you know, we've been talking about Afghanistan for, you know, for a while. Um, and that that whole thing that came up, in, you know, Anand Gopal wrote this article about called The Other Afghan Women, where he was talking about why women um, and accepted the Taliban, like over the American, you know, constant bombing and, and destruction of their villages. And they thought at least the Taliban could, you know, put an end to this. But he was talking about he went he goes back to the 70s in this village um, and and in the village, he says, you know, the communists sent these teachers and then the people slit all the teachers' throats. And then the communists got mad and arrested them all and they were never seen again. And it's like, well, you did slit all the teachers' throats. Like, <laughs> there was, you know, there was repression, but it wasn't repression because of, uh, you know, we were trying to force you to send your kids to school. It was repression because you murdered the teachers. Like, what's the punishment for murder? Um, in uh, in any country, well, uh, also that story is is not it's not accurate how it's mm -hmm. told. Um, I mean, I I spend a lot of time uh, talking to Anahita Ratevzad, who ran some of those literacy programs, have you know explored these things in Afghanistan and so on. Um, after the Saur Revolution in 1978, um, April 1978. One of the key features of that re new revolutionary government was we got to educate the public. You know, the education levels were abysmally low, both for men and women. Um, so 15,000 communists and sympathizers and teachers went out into rural areas extremely bravely because they had to confront um, the landlords. They had to confront conservative men. They had to confront conservative religious leaders. And eventually they had to confront um, the Mujahideen funded by the Pakistanis, the Saudis and the United States come across the border from Pakistan and, you know, attack them. These were very brave people, 15,000 of them and thousands of them either lost their lives or were kidnapped and never seen again. You know, many were kidnapped and God knows what happened to them. Were they taken to Pakistan? Were they, you know, forced to do whatever? I don't know. We don't know. Um, these are brave people. What were they doing wrong? You know, they were out there trying to bring literacy and education in the countryside and they were confronted not by the people. That's why I said that the story is wrong. They were not confronted by the people. They were confronted by landlords, by religious clerics, uh, by conservative figures who said we don't want education for our serfs. Because let's face it, in rural Afghanistan in the 1960s and 70s, 
land relations were appalling and most of the landless workers had to work as serfs they were indebted bond slaves and so on and when the communists and the teachers and others came to the countryside to conduct literacy classes amongst the bond slaves and so on landlords didn't want that this was a great threat to their what they saw as their property so which side are you going to stand on there are you going to stand with the landlords and with the mullahs and you know with the conservatives or with these people who want education i'm not talking i'm not saying stand with the teachers the people who want education the bond slaves and so on that's why i i reject the characterization the people rejected the teachers not true there's a class struggle in the countryside and the teachers Which came point? on the side of, of one class against another and they were killed because they did that. Now, is this modernization? To my mind, yes, but it's also the advance of society. You know, right. are I, you against that? I want to I want to add two more examples. One is obviously from Fan Shen, which is this documentary of the Chinese Revolution in a Village. It's a book. It's a big book by William Hinton. And I gathered later that William Hinton's daughter, like, lived in China and speaks fluent Chinese and participated in the government. But anyway, Hinton wrote this thing. And it's like, again, it's like land reform. It's it's the way people pressed for land reform during the Chinese revolution. And he talks quite a bit about the conditions before uh, the revolution where, um, you know, as a peasant, you have to go to the bathroom on the, the landlord's toilet because he has he is not just entitled to your labor and your time but he's also entitled to your bowel movements uh because that becomes night soil which is his right if you're if you're working for him that's his right so um landlords hate that so that's like what do you call that do you call that changes in that condition modernization that's one another example i wanted to add was the u.s after um, the Civil War, uh, the Reconstruction. That was when public education arrived in the U.S., uh, especially in the South. But like most of the public education in the U.S. starts after slavery is abolished, after the Civil War. And again, people were dragged kicking and screaming to education because the, the elite, the Southern elite and the racist elite despised it and it was black people who wanted education and demanded education that uh you know that led to that and so and then you know i just wanted to make a complete and utter contrast which i think you will agree i'm setting you up to agree with what canada does um and did with indigenous children that has nothing to do with modernization it has nothing to do with education they were kidnapping these children and taking them to these places where they died in huge numbers and burying them in unmarked graves and they were caught they were doing that with some kind of religious justification but ultimately they said we are doing this to kill the indian and the child we are doing this to get a final solution to the indian problem that's fascism that's the opposite of socialist or communist um, modernity, like the opposite in the sense that like these people are fighting to the death all over the world, um, these two projects. So that, you know. You know, I'm really glad you brought up (laughs) Bill Hinton's book, William Hinton's book, Fan Shen. Um, I recommend to people another book, 10 Mile Island, uh, 10 Mile Inn, sorry, 10 Mile Inn by Isabel Crook and um, David Crook. In fact, I met Isabel in Beijing 
um, just a few years ago, uh, with a, there were a group of Americans uh, like William Hinton and others. Many of them studied at the Putney School in Vermont as children. Um, and they went to China. They were, you know, socialists in one way or the other. Many of them worked in Chinese media. So did uh, Isabel Crook. But Ten Mile In is as good a book as Fan Shen. I met William Hinton toward the end of his life. Uh, all of them were struck by the way in which the Chinese Revolution, the people involved in the Chinese Revolution were angry um, with the cultural practices of their past, from foot binding uh, to deference to landlords. You know, when, when the Chinese Revolution succeeds and Mao is there at Tiananmen Square, the phrase he uses is captivating. He says, China has stood up. You know, the idea of standing up is important. When Thomas Sankara takes power in uh, Upper Volta in a coup d'etat in 1983, one of the first things Sankara does is he changes the name of the country. He says, Upper Volta, that's a colonial name. We don't live north of the Volta live River. We are the land of upright people, Burkina Faso, the land of upright people. And then Mao says, China stands up, it stood up because, you know, the idea of being hunched in front of a landlord, compulsory hunching. Um, when a landlord comes by, you have to bow down. You have to bow your head. Look, eyes have to be averted. You know, your family is from Kerala. In Kerala, there were hideous cultural practices that the landlords and Brahmins enforced. People had to look down. Their shadow couldn't be couldn't touch a Brahmin. They couldn't open an umbrella on the road. They couldn't walk on the main road. They had to walk on side roads. Um, women couldn't wear a top. They had to have their breasts exposed and so on. This wretched kind of culture that we inherited in 10 Mile Inn, Isabel and David Crook write with great feeling of the anger of the peasantry as they come into some authority and they say, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. Sorry, you know, we are going to transform our culture. Now, what do you call this? You call this the advance of a society. This is a people saying we are going to reject it. And it's a class struggle. You know, it's about a certain class that has been suffocated, saying we want to breathe. That's why I like that phrase a lot. You know, land of upright people in Sankara's, um, you know, thing. Yeah. Or Mao saying, stand up straight. Well, you know? and, and I think I think we should, I think that's a great uh, thing because like historically speaking, because he didn't just say like Chinese people have stood up. He said China has stood up. And he's referring to stood up after the so-called century of humiliation, the long century of humiliation that starts with the opium war, opium wars, the destruction of the summer palace, the uh, you know the the basically sponsoring both sides of the of the um, Tian Ping rebellion, the Taiping rebellion, um, you know the famines that they imposed. You know the the if you late Victorian Holocaust has a little bit of this. That, like we're talking about tens of millions of people of Chinese people who died, just like Indian people who died from these famines at around the same time during this century. Uh, wars and you know destruction and that is actually when Hong Kong became a colony of Britain and you know uh, again for no particular reason I just want to clarify like Hong Kong and the whole discussion of like the the you know what happened in Hong Kong a couple of years ago because of the security law uh, that China was imposing which is like 
pretty much the same type of law that many countries in the world have but like and the and the repression that went on uh when china was repressing the movement against that law which again was far far less than you'd see in the u.s during the george floyd rebellion or you know or like everyday normal violence in the u.s not even during a war but but i just wanted to say like hong kong specifically like that history um uh, it, you know, there's there's a little bit too much colonial nostalgia for like how great things were under the British um, that I see when people are talking about Hong Kong. I don't know if you I don't know if you detect that kind of vibe. Yeah, well, the first thing I want to say, because you've raised it in this way, Justin, is that in India, when India wins its independence and the partition takes place and India is then created as a Republic in 1947, independence, 1950, we have a constitution and become a republic. Um, 11 years later, Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru tells the Indian military to get ready. They line up in um, Western India and they march into three parts of India to militarily seize them back into Indian territory. And that's the areas of Goa, Daman and Dui, which were Portuguese colonies. So the Indian government in 1961 walks into Goa and liberates Goa from Portuguese rule. Um, were there, now, were there tanks? Vijay? They might have very well have been, have been tanks. Uh, this is in 1961. Um, this is two years after the uh, People's Liberation Army um, second time enter into the province of Tibet. The first time was in 1950. In 1959, uh, you know, the Potala, the palace is, is, is now under civilian rule, no longer under the rule of the Lamas, 1959. Um, but in India, this happens in 61. And by the way, nobody talks about it. It's interesting. The Chinese government in 1961, 62, 63 did not walk into Hong Kong. They waited till 1997 when effectively the lease ran out. I mean, the Chinese government actually followed the terms of the lease that had been there uh, with the, um, you know, with the, the, um, with the British government. What's interesting is, okay, they followed the terms of the lease. The last governor general of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, who, by the way, oversaw the colony without any democratic rights, is now a regular guest on the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, regular guest complaining about the lack of democracy in Hong Kong. BBC is one of the lead journalistic houses, just as it reported appallingly on Zimbabwe, lots of colonial nostalgia for what was previously Rhodesia, lots of nostalgia. In the same Wait, way- Ro the Who's that named after, Rhodesia? What's exactly, that? who is that named after? There's a question, even Wikipedia entry is not bad. <laughs> Go check out, who is Rhodesia named after? Well, in Hong Kong, in the case of Hong Kong, 1997, you know, that's when the so-called uh, lease expires and Hong Kong comes back to um, territorial control of, of the Chinese government, which it had been before the lease. It's not like, you know, some mysterious thing. And the um, lease wasn't like, the lease was one of the unequal treaties. Again, something to look up for listeners, look up the unequal treaties. Uh, but they still honored it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Indian government didn't honor anything, just walked into Goa and took it back. Yeah. And the people of Goa, there were people who were upset to move to Portugal. 
so it's not the case that oh in goa people were all thrilled it's also the case when the lease expired in 97 there were lots of people in hong kong who didn't want to leave britain you know they wanted to be part of britain that happens in all colonies okay when the colonial situation takes place people collaborate with the colonial leaders then they want to go with them that happens it's, all the time it's also the colonial education system honestly it's the colonial you know, education it's a, system it's an education and system that's designed not for modernization but to prepare people to be you know what the colony what the colonizer needs them to be and there's nothing wrong with that i don't disparage the people that say okay i'm going off to england now you go that's fine yeah. the issue is um britain in a sense wants to maintain hong kong as a permanent colony that's the real issue um you know one good thing you can say is that um you know, when when the Portuguese uh, dictatorship was confronted with Indian takeover of Goa, they couldn't react. They, they might have tried, but they couldn't because a big country like India decided to come in. So interesting on the African continent, on the other hand, at the same time, the Portuguese were brutal in Guinea-Bissau. Um, you know, when Amilcar Cabral and his comrades first began, they began as a non-violent movement. They experienced massacres in Mozambique. This is all in the 1960s, just after India walked into Goa. No European or US power came out there and put pressure on Lisbon not to behave like that. And you know, the government, the Portuguese government treated Angola, Mozambique, Guinea, they treated the people there as simply less than human. They animalized labor. I'm being very deliberate in my use of words. They did not treat people as human beings. Um, and there was no criticism of the Portuguese colonial experience, which only ended because the people of Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau threw them out in 1974. 1974, you yeah. guys. 1974. Angola was a colony until 1974. Yeah, and it's because the people of Africa overthrew the colonial yoke in these countries that the people in Portugal overthrew their dictatorship. You know, troops who went to fight in Angola, fight in Mozambique, came back totally desolate. And they were part of the struggle to overthrow the Salazar so, dictatorship. So would you say then that uh, Africa helped Portugal to modernize in a sense? I would um, say that probably. it was the cause, it was the African National Liberation Movements that brought democracy to Portugal. And the Portuguese should every day get on their knees and rather than thank Salazar and the dictatorship or even the first government, democratic government that came, they should thank the people of Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau and so on for, in fact, giving Portugal democracy. They would never have had democracy, um, you know, so easily as they did because of the struggles in this part of the world. Uh, a couple of other things I'd like to talk about. One is that, you know, you, you've talked a, a lot about like a you use the term the hybrid war, the US hybrid war on China. So the idea is that a hybrid war is not like, you know, what you would think of the US having done in Iraq or whatever, like they're, they're, they're not just gonna invade, but it's like a, a complicated, you know, there's proxies, there's information war, there's financial war, there's, you know, legal war, there's lawfare, right? The, you know, I, I covered here uh, the kidnapping of the, a Chinese executive, Meng Wanzhou, from Huawei mm -hmm. in Canada. <laughs> the U.S. arranged Canada to do it, but um, you know that uh, that that whole 
that's part of the hybrid war too. But like Xinjiang, uh, which is, you know, borders Afghanistan and, uh, you know, is, is this Northwestern um, part of China. Uh, it's um, the ethnicity is Uyghur and, and they have a, a culture. It's, it's Muslim. Most of the Uyghur uh, people are Muslim. Um, and every so often, you know, and there was, there wasn't, there was an issue. There was a fairly strong, like separatist movement, a violent separatist movement. Uh, a lot of veterans of um, Syria, uh, the Syria attempt to overthrow Syria. Uh, there are still a lot of uh, Uyghur, um, I guess, uh, militants in Syria now, but a lot of them coming back, uh, they were, and, and, and people who fought in Afghanistan as well, veterans of the Afghan uh, so-called jihad um, in the 80s, coming back to Xinjiang and trying to uh, establish a kind of independent um, so-called East Turkestan um, on a kind of, you know, that model on like a Saudi model or whatever, like a, with those kinds of um, practices and principles. And, you know, people, people, there's a guy on Twitter that I follow, Maitreya Makal, and he says, you know, compare the different um, approaches to a terrorist attack, because there were fairly big um, and fairly brutal attacks by this uh, East Timor, uh, whatever, I mean, East Timor, East Turkestan uh, movement. Uh, and, and the Chinese uh, responded with this whole program where they, you know, they did investments and they did uh, these, they put, they arrested people and they put them in these re-education camps because it's like, you know, everything for them is like, you know, it's like that Maoist uh policy of like you you stick people <laughs> you sit people down and you criticize them and and so on like there's a whole history of of this in chinese history but like the he's his point was you know maybe that re-education is bad I'm not saying it's good but compare that policy to the u.s policy um and it is clearly the least the lesser evil like if the u.s is attacked by terrorists they go and bomb the country. They bomb children. They bomb women. They bomb indiscriminately. They, you know, they cluster bomb. They leave bombs that are going to be there for generations. You know, they destroyed Afghanistan. They occupied it for twenty years. They killed a million people in Iraq, um, supposedly all to fight terrorism. China has these re-education camps in Xinjiang, where people are, you know, they learn job skills and and language and they're very they're, there's a lot of monitoring there's a lot of surveillance they they watch what people do on the internet the way you know the fbi other people watch what you do on the internet if you get if you watch too many jihad videos you will get a visit from the secret service in canada or in the u.s so like the the thing in xinjiang is i think it's fair to say there's a state there's repression there's uh, things that they've done um, as a result of, you know, trying to repress this campaign of separatism and and some of these attack organized attacks. Now, what I want, like, what my problem here is the the people in the the U.S. that are that have the the take on it where like we should um, we should boycott, you know. Things that are produced there, we should boycott investment. We should, and and the ultimate goal of that is the U.S. strategy of creating economic hardship, unemployment, and you know basically 
using trying to create a, a again a pool of resentful people with no opportunities that may then join this kind of uh, separatist movement. So, you know, that's also part of a hybrid war. That's also part of, you know, the US strategy ultimately to break up the countries that rival them. You know, that that's their long-term idea. So I don't know, what do you what do you think about the 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 US hybrid war and also for, you know, people who call for things that are actually going to hurt the people there even more. Um, yeah. yeah, well, let's go back a little bit because okay. there, there were some serious problems in Xinjiang and in other provinces in China uh, where there were large numbers of minority peoples. You know, when in 1978, when China had a reform era open up uh, under Deng Xiaoping, um, there was an understanding that China had to grow the economy. Um, it had to increase productivity, it had to increase its scientific and technological know-how and so on, because there was impending stagnation, because after a point you can't keep redistributing uh, whatever surplus you have, you have to produce a surplus and so on. Um, that was in 1978. By the um, early to mid-1990s, there was a recognition that a lot of disparities had crept in. One of the great disparities was the disparity in areas far from the Pacific, um, you know, coastal region. Uh, so, you know, not only Xinjiang, but Kunming and other provinces were not getting the kind of benefits that the Pacific provinces were getting. That was one problem. Secondly, there seemed to be an increase in poverty among minority peoples. That was an issue on the table and had been, to be fair, an issue on the table in the 1950s when the Dalai Lama was the chairperson of the National Minorities Commission in Beijing. Um, they had already discussed disparities of minorities and so on, but there was really no agenda to pick that up. Um, this was not taken that seriously, in fact, until the early 2000s, when again this came on the table, there was a suggestion, well, we've got to look west, uh, we've got to develop uh, western provinces and so on. At that time, there were grievances in Xinjiang, no question about it. There were lots of grievances. And it turned out, unfortunately, that because of the war in, in Afghanistan, because of the really quite horrendous groups that had um, developed in Central Asia, including the um, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, you know, brutal group uh, and so on, many of these young disgruntled um, you know, people from Xinjiang went off to Central Asia and then they went into the kind of Jihad International, you know, uh, cutting their teeth in, in Libya. I mean, I met many of these people in Syria, uh, in, you know, now they are all the headquarters of their movement is, is in Idlib. It's not in, in, in Xinjiang. It's not even in, in Central Asia. It's not in Afghanistan. It's in Idlib, Syria. That's the headquarters. I met them on the border of the Turkey and Syria. Um, they had been involved in various attacks. They had been part of ISIS, some of them. Some of them had been in various Al-Qaeda groups, Jabhat al-Nusra in the earlier, uh, its earlier iteration and so on. Um, these uh, men mainly came back to um, Central Asia. They got into Xinjiang. They conducted terror activities and so on. But I also want to say, that they were produced by a problem, which was this kind of neglect of the region, um, uh, the, the kind of increasing levels of disparity. 
when Xi Jinping comes to office in 2013, um, you know, he develops this theory of one belt, one road, and then eventually it gets called the Belt and Road. And they push hard, um, you know, on uh, trying to eliminate as many disparities as possible, and particularly to eliminate disparities uh, that are faced by minority people. So the poverty, the abolition of extreme poverty, you know, Xi Jinping and others are on record. China has lifted 800 million people out of poverty since 1949. The last 100 million were the hardest to, uh, to find their way out, largely because many of them were ethnic minorities. Um, where, you know, they had been neglected um, and face it, there are some problems. There are, you know, uh, social hierarchies in China that had to be confronted. You know, Mao wrote about this in the early years. We've got to stop hand uh, chauvinism. This is a lot like Lenin's writings against great Russian chauvinism. You know, we've got to confront the fact that there are these chauvinisms and so on. So Xi Jinping put a lot of emphasis on trying to get rid of uh, disparities amongst uh, between the uh, majority population and the minorities. And this is where Xinjiang becomes, in a sense, uh, ground zero. So, so does Kunming, so do other provinces. Um, so what you see actually is a combination of various things, poverty alleviation, you see this whole, um, you know, re-education of people who have been, uh, you know, seduced into um, some of these terroristic kind of Islamic groups and so on. It's a combination of all these things happening in Xinjiang now. Now, what's partly frustrating is that the, 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 the kind of communication that comes uh, from Washington DC and other places about what's happening in Xinjiang is unwilling to entertain its complexities. You know, it's unwilling to entertain the issue of minorities who are fighting, um, you know, themselves to get out of poverty, fighting themselves uh, to improve their conditions. I mean, that, one of the interesting features, just, just let me finish yeah. the one interesting feature of this, Justin, is the question of mechanization. There was a statement made of slave labor in southern Xinjiang, in the cotton belt. Well, I would like to see John Deere come out and make a public statement about the number of heavy machinery it has sold the government and private companies in southern Xinjiang. John Deere has made a lot of money selling heavy machinery in that part of the world. If you have heavy machinery in the cotton production, what slave labor? You know, I, I talked to a professor at Urumqi on this issue. She has written a PhD on this. She says, well, look, there are great problems, uh, you know, for the laborers. There are lots of problems, just as there are problems for workers all across the world. But it doesn't come to the level of slavery or anything like that. There are struggles that must be taken seriously but it's different than saying you know it's slavery it's genocide these are very difficult words and in fact rather than elucidate they shut off discussion yeah and uh, that's what i was going to say you 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 were very euphemistic when you said they're un the literature coming out of washington is unwilling to confront the complexities the literature coming out of washington comes from one psycho psychotic uh christian evangelical end times guy named adrian zenz and it's not just unwilling to confront the complexities, it's, it's uh, willing to make up stuff out of whole cloth, uh, you know? So it's the, the information is so bad um, that it's hard to, you know, that, that's, that's one of the biggest problems is like, it's, it's, really hard to, um, it's really hard to assess or 
or believe any claim that the U.S. makes out about what's what's going on in any. I mean, that's true for Iran. It's true for Yemen. It's true for Venezuela or Cuba. But, it, you know, it's also very true for China. And, and well, the sad part of it is that, you know, they manipulate the reality where there are bits and pieces of truth. You know, there are bits and pieces of truth which are put under heavy concepts that make you feel like something horrible is transpiring. The bits and pieces of truth. There have been neglect of minority people. Nobody is denying that in Beijing. You know, in fact, there are documents written about this uh, that directed people in the poverty alleviation campaign to focus on the question of minority disparity. So they take that, you know, little bits and pieces of the disparity literature, or they take bits and pieces of the fact that, you know, the Chinese government is going after people who've been influenced by this ideology, you know, the kind of jihadist ideology. Look, the, we're talking, this is the 20th anniversary of Guantanamo's being set up. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that there's a perfect way to deal with the fact of of uh, of you know some sort of ideology that is committed to you know mass murder or whatever i i don't know if there's a perfect way to do it but certainly this is not as bad as going and wholesale bombing a country into extinction you know even what the russians did in chechnya mm -hmm. you're not seeing that in xinjiang i mean you, you know what the americans did in iraq what the russians did in chechnya um what the british did during colonial times where they just said we're going to go and bomb the savages yeah. You don't see that happening in Xinjiang. Yeah. Whatever you see, it may be, it may trouble your appetite. It may be a problem and so on. But it's certainly not, um, you know, it doesn't rise to the level of the kind of terrible violence that we saw in Iraq, that I saw in Iraq. Uh, I saw how almost every family in Baghdad was marked by the killing, marked by, um, you know, the, the trauma of that war, which, you know, I don't even know if it's over yet, Justin. That's the thing. Or the kind of behavior um, of the dirty wars in Central America in the 1980s. You know, n none of this rises to that standard. You know, well, and I mean, like the and the cultural genocide accusations also don't hold up. There's language. You know, there's signage. There's language education in Uyghur. It's like the the accusation seems to be that if you're learning mandarin as a second language that that's cultural genocide meanwhile again like in canada uh you know indigenous nations are you know have been demanding education in their own languages for you know for at least two generations and it's like ah oh, you know we we here in the wealthiest country in the world we can't find the money for it but china where the per capita income is far lower uh, they do. They find resources for, you know, for to keep the language not just alive, but like, you know, to make sure that every kid, every Uyghur kids have education in their own language. They I mean, the behavior of the in Indian government in Kashmir is far worse than anything that I have seen in some of these provinces. And by the way, you use the phrase cultural genocide. Yeah. In international law literature, there is no such phrase. There is a um, there is a convention against genocide. You know, genocide culture. should yeah. not be minimized. Yeah. That's yeah. where you kill people. You know, where yeah. you come in to do ethnocide, genocide, the killing of an entire people. There's been a long debate in the UN about the term cultural genocide. It's rejected. Article two of the Convention on Genocide actually has something interesting. It talks about how it's a it's a crime to take children away from their families and put them somewhere else and educate them. Hello, that's the experience of Canada. They said that that's because of Canada. 
Exactly. That's not, that's the not an abstract States. thing. They put that in there because of Canada. That's Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. The term cultural genocide has been rejected over the years. In fact, um, the most, you know, closest it came into the uh, various UN things was when there was a deliberation about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. There was a discussion about whether the term cultural genocide should be brought in. In This is in 1994 in Article 7. I really, I remember this as if it was yesterday, this debate, because I, I have had strong feelings about how people's culture is taken away from them and so on. The term was not adopted because, again, lots of countries felt, let's not minimize the concept genocide. That means the killing of people, taking away of your culture. This is now entering a complicated area because, you see, you could then argue, Justin, the Indian government, a right wing Indian government could argue anti-Brahminism is cultural genocide. You can't commit genocide against Brahmins. Brahmins should be allowed to exercise their culture. For God's sake, I want to obliterate Brahmin culture. You know, Brahmin culture. Right. The culture is, of like, you can't look this person in the eye and you can't eat with them and you can't. Yeah, why uh, can't somebody turn around and say patriarchy culture. is my culture? No, yeah. patriarchy is not your culture. We are going to fight patriarchy and, and yeah. bring it out from the ground, root all the root of it. And so that's the reason why cultural genocide, there was hesitancy because people knew what will happen is, and remember this is 1994, this debate has been going from 1948, Convention on Genocide, till the 90s, right through the period of the 1960s when new cultural forms were appearing, people were talking about women's rights, people were talking about gay rights, people were talking about the rights of minorities and so on. All of that was on the table. Now, why couldn't the white supremacist government in South Africa, the apartheid government say, my God, our culture is apartheid. They did. They and did. they did. The South, exactly. the peculiar institution, the U.S. South, that was one of their main arguments, right? That right. Was, so yeah. this is the reason why the term cultural genocide did not become law, uh, because there was great hesitancy. Because you and I know, other people know, people who suffer from the other side of culture know that there are some things that we have to rip out root and branch, you know, root and branch. In Tibet, for instance, until, um, you know, right through when the Lamas were in charge, the wretched feudal condition for the serfs must be recognized and put on the table. You know, whatever you feel about the role of the Dalai Lama in the world and so on, the wretched way in which the Lamas ran Tibet has to be put on the table. now. I don't believe that necessarily, you know, all cultural artifacts or heritages and so on. You know, I was very upset when I saw the uh, um, uh, the Bamiyan Buddhas get uh, blown by the Taliban. You know, it's a great resource of humanity. We don't want to destroy that. We don't want to destroy museums. But the social relations of hierarchy, Justin, social relations of hierarchy, we are not zoo animals, okay? We don't want to have that shit preserved. We want to destroy it. Call it modernization, call it whatever you want. But if you start calling that cultural genocide, you will, you will drift immediately to the right. Yeah. Because you will then give an opening to Mr. Narendra Modi to say, caste is our culture. And yeah. therefore, any attempt to get rid of caste is the genocide of our culture. God forbid you take that position. Yeah. So what? I guess the last thing, um, is again something I've observed. Uh, it seems to be your turn um, because every few months 
it seems to me there's an article about tankies or the campists. Um, and so, and it's in left publications. So it's sort of like this thing where there's a left publication, they publish a thing being like, you know, in this case, the most recent one was like, there's this debate on the left wing of the Democratic Party, what to do about China? How do we formulate a policy about China? Um, within, it's sort of like a, as a internal to the US debate, what kind of position should the US left take uh, on China, rhetorically, I suppose. Um, and the problem is that there's all these tankies and all these campists and they keep uh, trying to push this anti-imperialism uh, and it's divisive. It's dividing the, the left wing of the Democratic Party. It's dividing the Democratic Socialists of America. And, it, you know, this article concludes with this thing where they say, you know, the U it, during the f last Cold War, the U.S. monopolized freedom and, and the USSR monopolized the discourse of peace. And, you know, it seems like we can't have both. And, you know, I don't know what we're going to do about China. And, uh, and it's like the other the other pattern that I notice is like there's there's like a kind of they kind of go after individuals, too. So it's like, you know, I remember during the Syria when Syria was big, they went after Rania Kalik in a big way. And they were like, Rania Kalik is an Assadist. And it's like never really about the individual. It's sort of like they target people so that they hope they hope I think that the tankies will disassociate from this because it's like, well, we don't want to we don't want to get criticized the way. Rania is getting criticized because that's really nasty. Um, and now it it's, looks like it's it's your turn. So, um, you know, congratulations, I guess. <laughs> I suppose. I mean, the, the st striking thing, Justin, is that in the one paragraph where I appear in this article, um, there are two different places where the, the journalist essentially puts words into my mouth. You know, yeah, once perfect. he says, this is sort of what he must be saying. Yeah. And, you know, he says, well, you know, maybe somewhere around here. I mean, that to me is an outrageous use of, of you know, if, if you're not clear, I spoke to the journalist. If the journalist is not clear about what I said to him, he had my phone number. He could have called me till the very last moment to say, can you clarify? He could have literally said what he wrote. He could have said, hey, it sounds like you're saying that uh, destruction of indigenous people's cultures is good. Is that what you're saying, Vijay? Because it doesn't sound like and, and you know, <laughs> 30 years plus of writing over 30 books, thousands of articles in which I've been very clear about my opinions on British rule in India, on um, the, the, the massacre of native people, genocide of native people in the Americas, very clear in all the stuff that I've, I've written. Uh, to then suggest that my analogy, you know, was suggesting that I believed it was okay to conduct the genocide of native people. I find that not only to be disingenuous, that's libel. And, you know, I've written a letter to the editors of the nation. I hope they publish it. Unfortunately, in the United States, uh, libel laws are very weak. Uh, they actually protect um, the uh, person who makes the libel statement. Uh, so it's no point going on that road, but I have written to the nation and I know this is libel. The, the journalist has libeled me. Um, and you know, uh, I, I am, I have nothing to feel embarrassed about or ashamed of. I have strong opinions. I will not bow from those opinions. 
you know honestly i don't care what your position is on china but i do hope that people are against the war that is being built up against china um, because mean, that's facts, extinction the facts, the facts also matter right because it's like they can they they say they can make a claim that genocide you know anybody is committing genocide and then if you say well i don't think the facts hold up that claim you become a genocide denier which is like you know a holocaust denier which is like the worst thing you can be so that's well but you know some of this is a carryover from syria i mean i find of that course. many of the yeah. people they're who are still angry mad with, at you they're yeah, still, they're mad still at you angry with me for the whatever reporting i did from inside syria including kalamun and from northern Syria in the Turkish border and so on, they still hate me for my reporting in Syria. Some of them still hate me for my reporting in Libya. Um, these are just, you know, people who have an axe to grind. And I get it, you know. I'm sorry you don't like what I say. And I'm sorry that uh, you're upset that people read me. You know, that's what really is bothering, bothers them to people. You know, I'm sorry about all that. Go and write your own stories, you know. Uh, tell your own stories. Why are you so obsessed with me? You know, why do you constantly, you know, harass uh, people who, who maybe refer to me or, or, or tweet something that, I, you know, these people are obsessive. Then I wonder, are they real? And that's a serious question, given revelations about the troll farms in India. And I mean, um, there's yeah. the, there's the real. There's also the you know there's a there's right there in the congressional record. There's like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for media who attack China and and you know try to attack China's favorable impression in the world. Like that's a there was a law passed for like three hundred million dollars a year for that. Like. You know, it's just it's a lot of money to leave on the table if you're a media operation, you know. Um, so I just, you know, it's 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 the thing about these kind of Cold War literature, you know, fights, right? Like Louis Alday has said this. Uh, he's like, we know now in the 70s that there were all kinds of shenanigans where the state was involved in funding these kinds of Cold War anti-communist programs. Um, we'll only know the the details of these programs 30 years from now. So like, but the idea that they've stopped, <laughs> the idea that this just ended in the 70s strikes me as kind of unlikely. So, you know, keeping the, <laughs> keeping the US left clean of tankies, you know, trying to drive anti-imperialists out of US politics at every turn I think is a is a very important agenda item for them, and so anybody like you who who writes a lot um, and develops even a modest follow. I'm not to understate your following, but you, no, know. But you know, all I say to all I would say to the U.S. government and its various acolytes and so on is, good luck. I mean, good luck with <laughs> what you're trying to do. You know, basically history is against you. Yeah. Um, history is against you. Most people you know, around the world, looking at these matters, understand that, look, the United States government comes at them with guns and with terrible deals on paper. The Cubans come with doctors. Um, the Chinese come with doctors and with various kinds of aid and sometimes with bad deals as well. Okay, those are there, but they also come with other things. They don't come and bomb them. You know, when is the last time the Chinese government has bombed a country on the African continent or when is the last time the Cubans have gone and destabilized the government anywhere? 
let's grow up guys history is against you history is against imperialism you have to face it and all these people who are basically hand-wringing liberal imperialists they need to get with the program you want to be you want to think this we got to make a choice between what was it peace and 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 freedom, freedom. Yeah. you got to make a choice between i don't believe so i i believe in peace and freedom you hand-wring over what choice you're going to make i believe in peace and freedom and we are going to win and that's it that's it vijay prashad thank you for joining me today thanks a lot